Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Uh, before we do, let me just cover a couple quick housekeeping notes. Uh, most importantly, I want to shamelessly plug our publication, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, we put this out every uh, four years now as a resource, especially uh, for Hill staffers. Uh, what it does is kind of run down virtually every issue you deal with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from today's topic, foreign policy, to entitlements, trade, uh, you name it, it's in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's a great resource to keep on your desk as you're familiarizing yourself with new issues. Um, if you don't have a copy or if your uh, coworker tends to take your copy, please let me know and be happy to get you one. Uh, we do provide them free of charge to, to Capitol Hill staff. And the, uh, the entire publication is available on our website, cato.org. Um, Today's subject, as I mentioned, is, uh, is Afghanistan, and specifically we're going to be talking about a, a brand new paper that we just released at the Cato Institute, uh, which is Escaping the Graveyard of Empires. Everyone should have picked one, out on the picked one up on the registration table outside. If you didn't, uh, uh, you can get one on the way out. Um, also, as I mentioned, all of our publications, including this study, are available on our website, so you can get it there. Um, so we're going to hear today from the, the two co-authors of this study. Um, and first up is, uh, is Malou Innocent. She is a foreign policy analyst at Cato. Uh, she studies a, a number of, of, of different subjects there, but specifically uh, and primarily focused on uh, the Middle East, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Prior to joining Cato, she actually spent some time in the office of uh, Congressman Pete Stark, uh, Congressman from California. Um, she holds a bachelor's degree in mass communications and political science from the University of California, Berkeley and a Master's of Arts degree in International Relations from the University of Chicago. With that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Malou. Thank you all for coming. Is it on? Can you hear me? Excellent. Thank you. Please feel free to eat and uh, everything. I'll just keep talking. Uh, I think in debates surrounding the war in Afghanistan, a view common among the ranks of the political and military elite is that if the United States simply invested and committed more time and resources, uh, possibly hundreds of thousands of troops for another 12 to 14 years, Washington could really turn that country around. General Stanley McChrystal, who commanded Special Operations Forces in Iraq, and this summer became the commander of U.S. forces and military operations in Afghanistan, says he hopes to see an improvement with a fraction of those forces in as little to 18 to 24 months. However, there is a reason why the war in Afghanistan ranks at or near the bottom of polls tracking issues important to the American public and why most Americans who do have an opinion about the war either oppose it or oppose sending more combat troops. It's because Americans understand intuitively that the question about Afghanistan is not about whether it is winnable, but whether it constitutes a vital national security interest. An essential national debate about whether we really want to double down in Afghanistan has yet to be taken place. America still does not have a clearly articulated goal. This is why the conventional wisdom surrounding the war about whether we can build key institutions and create legitimate political systems is not so much misguided as it is misplaced. The issue is not about whether we can, but whether we should. This distinction is oftentimes overlooked. The question about whether we can do and what we can do in Afghanistan looks troubling. I have spoken to Western ambassadors, US troops who have returned from Afghanistan, provincial Afghan tribal chiefs, and I'm overwhelmed with the feeling that this mission would have to be measured not in years, but in decades many decades. And right now, the policy requires more troops than we can ever send. Add to that the burden of the spiraling financial crisis 
and the time and resources required for assisting Afghanistan will not be accomplished within costs acceptable to the American public. Only recently has the debate moved from the can to the should. Should we remain in Afghanistan? And the answer? When stacked against our own objective of disrupting, dismantling, and defeating al-Qaeda is clearly no. Going after al-Qaeda does not require a large-scale, long-term military presence for several reasons. First, we must keep in mind that the regular military is wonderful for killing bad guys with disproportionate firepower, destroying enemy troop formations, or bombing their command centers, but not for finding hidden killers like terrorists. Our greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. The scalpel of intelligence sharing and close cooperation with foreign law enforcement agencies have done more to round up suspected terrorists in the sledgehammer of military force. In fact, most of the greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda, such as the snatch-and-grab operations that netted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Rimzi bin al-Shib, have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. Second, whether we withdraw or whether we stay, al-Qaeda can twist it into a victory. If we withdraw, we appear weak, even though America is responsible for almost half of the world's military spending, can project its power to the most inaccessible corners of the globe, and wields one of the planet's largest nuclear arsenals. Still, al-Qaeda can twist withdrawal into a weakness. But America also appears weak if it remains in the region too long. The military will appear bogged down, the strategy and the mission aimless. And despite our best efforts, military operations will continue to kill Afghan civilians, which will erode support for our presence. In addition, given the ideological nature of terrorism, our presence will reinforce the revolutionary cause al-Qaeda seeks to promote. And hand jihadists a potent recruiting tool they will be quick to exploit, as we have seen with the proliferation of Pakistani Taliban across the border. In addition, an extraordinarily costly and open-ended military occupation gives Osama bin Laden and his ilk exactly what they want, America's all-volunteer military pressed to cope with a protracted, irregular war of attrition. Policymakers and the public at large keep in mind that Osama bin Laden's stated objective and to ensnare America into multiple and ending wars and to, quote, bleed America to the point of bankruptcy, unquote. Overall, remaining in Afghanistan is more likely to tarnish America's image and reputation and undermine security rather than withdrawal. Third, our policy toward Afghanistan is undermining core U.S. interests in Pakistan. Our drone operations have successfully killed a number of high-value targets and may have seriously degraded al-Qaeda's global capabilities. But our policies are also pushing the region's powerful jihadist insurgency over the border and into Pakistan, carrying with it potentially devastating implications. For lack of a better analogy, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border is like a balloon. Pushing down on one side forces elements to the other. It doesn't necessarily eliminate the threat, especially when you consider that the border between these two countries is virtually non-existent. The sort of regional dimension to the problem means that Afghanistan cannot be viewed in isolation. The border, in some sense, doesn't mean anything. There's a lot of movement between the people in these areas. Last summer, I was fortunate enough to visit Peshawar, the administrative center of the federally administered tribal areas. I spoke to several South Waziri tribesmen about the collateral damage unleashed from U.S. airstrikes. They noted that airstrikes allow militants to define themselves as a force against the injustice of the Pakistani government and the foreign presence next door. And what we are witnessing is a local and regional ethnic Pashtun population fighting against what they perceive to be a hostile occupation of their region. As early as 2007, in response to repeated Pakistani army incursions, along with a growing number of U.S. missile strikes, an amalgamation of over two dozen tribal-based groups calling themselves the Taliban began to emerge in the Pakistani border region. 
These guerrillas won control of North and South Waziristan and merged into a single outfit known as Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, TTP. After consolidating control in the tribal areas, these militants eventually came down out of the hills and poured into Pakistani cities, fueling the wave of suicide bombings we've seen over the past several years. Before 9-11, terrorist attacks in Lahore were completely unheard of. Now they happen with increasing frequency. There's also been an influx of Pashtun militants into Karachi, Pakistan's industrial hub, causing major political and social tensions there. Unfortunately for Pakistanis, because the United States is literally oceans away, it is they, not us, who have become the primary target of insurgents. It is also why the State Department's 2009 terrorism report, despite finding an overall decline in terrorist attacks worldwide, discovered that attacks within Pakistan more than quadrupled from 2006 to 2008. Unfortunately, present U.S. policy is pushing militants deeper into Pakistani cities, strengthening the very jihadist forces we seek to defeat, and pressing this weakened nuclear-armed country in the direction of civil war. There are many other reasons why a large-scale, long-term military presence in Afghanistan is counterproductive to our interests. And a subject, it's a subject also that I've written on extensively. But I want to make sure that I have enough time for Q&A, and I know you're all busy, so I'll leave you with this. I think perhaps the worst thing we can do is turn our backs on this region entirely. It's what we did nearly a decade after funding the Mujahideen, and we paid for it dearly eight years ago with 9-11. But there are also costs to remaining in the region with a heavy booted presence, not simply in terms of manpower and resources, but again, in giving al-Qaeda what they want, pushing the conflict into Pakistan, and looking weak by remaining indefinitely, yet possibly accomplishing little. America should scale down its combat presence in the region, continue open relations and intelligence sharing with all countries in the region, deploy special forces for discrete operations against specific targets when feasible, and engage in intensive surveillance as it already does today. Whether Al-Qaeda coalesces in Yemen, in Sudan, or in Miami, Florida, our policy should not be to redesign a foreign people's way of life or tinker with the importance of their communal identity. As the war in Afghanistan rages on, President Obama should be skeptical of suggestions that the defeat of Al-Qaeda depends upon a massive troop presence. But I fear that the longer we stay and the more money we spend, the more we'll feel compelled to remain in the region to validate that investment. A similar self-imposed predicament plagued US officials during the war in Vietnam. But we drew the wrong lesson from that conflict and many others. Not that America should avoid intervening in another person's or another uh, country's dispute, but that America should never give up after having intervened no matter what the cost. The political discourse has already shifted as to whether this war has become Obama's Vietnam. I believe that whether it will be or not is entirely his decision. Thank you. Thanks, Malou. Uh, next, we'll hear from uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, who is uh, the other co-author of this study. Uh, Ted is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of eight and editor of ten books on international affairs. His latest book is Smart Power, toward a prudent... Uh, prudent Foreign Policy for America. Uh, Ted holds a PhD from uh, University of Texas in Diplomatic History, and he also serves on the editorial boards of uh, the Journal of Strategic Studies and Mediterranean Quarterly. Ben, I'll turn things over to Dr. Carpenter. Thank you very much, Brandon. <clears throat> Next month, we will mark the eighth anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. 
And despite that passage of time, we are still waiting for answers to four key questions. And I think we should have had these answers in year one. We shouldn't be needing those answers at this point in the mission. First question, specifically, specifically, what are America's objectives in Afghanistan? And I mean something more than we want to win or we want to achieve victory, which is about the level one gets when you ask what our objectives are. Second question, specifically, what is the strategy to achieve those objectives? Third question, what is the probability that the chosen strategy can achieve those stated objectives? And the fourth question, what is the probability that the objectives can be achieved with any feasible strategy? We waited seven <laughs> long years for the Bush administration to answer those questions, and we never really got a clear answer to any of them. And we've now waited uh, eight months for the Obama administration to give a clear answer. And for the most part, we're still waiting. Now, it's true. Last week, the administration sent Congress um, eight general yardsticks to measure progress in Afghanistan. And the administration said it was providing metrics to judge our success. But as critics quickly pointed out, better than half of those metrics were purely subjective. Now, some metrics could be measured objectively by public opinion polls, for example, or economic data. But others were of a very different sort. <coughs> One metric, for example, calls on the United States and its allies, and I quote, to defeat extremist insurgencies, secure the Afghan populace, and develop increasingly self-reliant Afghan security forces that can lead the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism fight with reduced <coughs> U.S. assistance, unquote. That is a metric. When I saw that, I was reminded of a story about Abraham Lincoln's uh, impatience with his cabinet. And some members were inclined to engage in that kind of sloppy thinking. And a frustrated Lincoln finally posed a question to members of his cabinet. He said, gentlemen, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs would a dog have? And some of the cabinet members took the bait and said, well, Mr. President, a dog would then have five legs. And Lincoln wearily responded, no, gentlemen, calling a dog's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And calling vague goals and aspirations metrics doesn't make them metrics. We are still waiting for specific answers. We started a mission in 2001 <coughs> to go after al-Qaeda. But what has happened over the years is that we have drifted into an amorphous nation-building mission, 
of unlimited scope and seemingly unlimited duration. That, I believe, is a huge mistake. Our objective should be limited and straightforward, and that is to prevent al-Qaeda from again using Afghanistan as a reliable sanctuary to plan and execute large-scale attacks as it did on 9-11. Now, there are a number of missions we don't need to pursue in order to achieve that objective. To start with, we don't need to try to transform Afghanistan into a stable, modern, democratic, well-governed society. That probably can't be done in any case. At least it can't be done at a reasonable cost in blood and treasure in a reasonable amount of time. Afghanistan is largely a pre-industrial clan and tribal-based society. It's almost a misnomer even to call it a nation-state. I think those of us in the West have a nasty tendency to project our assumptions and values onto very different cultures. And you, you see that even in geography. You'll see maps that have well-defined countries with precise boundaries. The country is of a certain color on that map. And there's a nice star somewhere in the center to designate a national capital. Uh, in many parts of the world, that's really not how things work. We are taking a system that has been largely confined to the modern industrial world and applying it in a very different and inappropriate setting. Moreover, nation building has a lousy track record, even in far more promising environments than Afghanistan. A second mission we don't need to pursue is to win the war on drugs in Afghanistan. I have to admit that that particular mission drives me crazy. There was a, an important report to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on <coughs> drugs in Afghanistan, and the report <coughs> reached a rather surprising conclusion, namely that there was no evidence that there were substantial revenues from the opium trade going to al-Qaeda. To the Taliban, yes, not to al-Qaeda. The reality is that illegal drugs are a pervasive part of Afghanistan's economy, at least a third of the country's gross domestic product. Now, supporters of the counter-narcotics mission as part of the broader mission in Afghanistan will always say, but you know, the Taliban and al-Qaeda get a lot of their revenues from the drug trade. Well, it's true, at least with regard to the Taliban, but it's also true that pro-government factions are up to their eyeballs in the drug trade. Counter-narcotics efforts undermine our larger mission, however we define that larger mission. It alienates local and regional power brokers whose support for the U.S.-NATO mission and for the Karzai government is critical. 
And even worse, when we adopt crop eradication programs, it alienates Afghan farmers. It swings them in the direction of the insurgency. It dries up sources of information that our troops need about movements of al-Qaeda and Taliban forces. This is a mission that we need to abandon entirely. And finally, I would argue we don't need to crush the Taliban to achieve our legitimate objectives regarding al-Qaeda. I think we've made a rather large mistake in conflating al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The former is a foreign terrorist organization with the U.S. in its crosshairs. The latter is, admittedly, a repulsive political faction. But it represents Pashtun solidarity, not a direct security threat to the United States. I don't think the Taliban would give a wit about the U.S. if the U.S. were not in Afghanistan. And over the years, we've largely drifted into a war against the Taliban, not al-Qaeda. Even General McChrystal, about two weeks ago, made a rather startling admission that there is no evidence of a significant al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan anymore. Again, our focus is now on the Taliban rather than al-Qaeda, and that is a mistake. What would be a strategy for success? Well, first of all, we need to dial back the concept of victory to something that protects America's core security interests and has a reasonable prospect of success. That means focusing on disrupting and weakening al-Qaeda, but realizing that it's probably not possible to have a definitive victory over a shadowy, non-state terrorist adversary. Would like to have that? Probably not achievable. Instead, we need to treat al-Qaeda and the terrorist threat it represents as a chronic security problem that needs to be managed. A second part of the strategy, as I indicated, abandon the counter-narcotics campaign entirely and abandon any notion of a successful nation-building mission in Afghanistan. Instead, we need to cut deals with any relevant players that means regional warlords. That means clan and tribal leaders. It may even include elements of the Taliban who are willing to break away from al-Qaeda and be willing to work with us against that terrorist organization. We don't need a large military footprint to achieve such modest, realistic goals. A small number of CIA and Special Forces personnel to work with cooperative players is probably enough to achieve that. That means that virtually all U.S. forces can and should be withdrawn within a relatively short period of time, and I've described that elsewhere as about 18 months. In other words, escalation, which the Obama administration has already embraced and which military commanders are even pushing for a second stage, is precisely the wrong strategy. No matter how long we stay, how much money we spend, and how many lives we squander, Afghanistan is never going to become a Central Asian version of Arizona or Alaska. And we should stop operating under the delusion that it will. Thank you. Thank you.